C.S. Lewis was one of the most famous, influential Christian authors of the 20th century. He left atheism for the Christian faith, but apparently he also stayed in touch with those who were atheists. He wrote to one atheist saying these words, If Christ was not God, who or what was he? The doctrine, which means teaching, of Christ's divinity seems to me something that peeps out to me at every point in the New Testament so that you have to unravel the whole web to get rid of it. And if you take away the Godhead of Christ, what is Christianity all about? If you take away the Godhead of Christ, then Christianity cannot help you. But Jesus Christ is, in fact, God, fully God, always has been, and always will be. We've said it once, and we'll say it again. One of the main themes of the Gospel of John is the fact that Jesus is God, and that by believing in Him, you can have eternal life. That's the thesis statement, which is at John 20, 30-31, which says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the theme that appears over and over and over again. That Jesus is God, and by believing in Him, you can have life in His name. But there are other sub-themes that also appear in John's Gospel repeatedly. And one of those sub-themes is the theme of witness. Witness. This passage teaches us that there are many witnesses to Jesus' divinity. It's a wonderful passage, although it's a relatively long passage for just one sermon. And if you read it, you will notice that Jesus is saying some hard things here. Whenever you're reading the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see that Jesus is saying some hard things, you have to ask, who's he talking to? Almost always, he's not talking to his disciples or those who are hurting in some way. He's almost always saying the harsh, difficult things for the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the hypocritical leaders. And earlier in this chapter, Jesus heals a man who was an invalid by a pool called Bethesda in the ancient Near East. And he did this on the Sabbath day, which did not sit well with the religious leaders. And because Jesus declared himself to be God, and because he broke the Sabbath, they were trying to find ways to kill him. And Jesus has this long response to what he is doing. Last week's sermon, we covered the beginning part of this passage. And today is a continuation of Jesus' response to why he's doing what he's doing. And he's trying to show that he is God and there are many witnesses to his divinity. You may have seen a, a video surface recently of Ahmad Arbery down in Georgia, who was killed by a father and son um, back in February. Happened in February, but the footage only recently got on social media here a couple of weeks ago. The reason why we were able to see the footage was because there was a witness. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die is to be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. That's an Old Testament rule. Jesus knew the Old Testament really well, 
In fact, it was the book, it was the part of scripture that he read, memorized, obeyed. And the religious leaders knew it really well too. And so what the religious leaders are trying to do is they're trying to use scripture in the Old Testament to say, hey, we think we have evidence and witnesses to put you to death. But the brilliance of what Christ is doing is actually flipping it on them and saying, no, I don't deserve death. Actually, the witnesses and the evidence in my life show that I am, in fact, God, and you don't know how to read the Bible correctly. That's what Jesus is ultimately showing. There are many witnesses that prove this. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen John the Baptist, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Scriptures, Christ's disciples, Jesus' own miracles. There are many witnesses, and we need to see these because they strengthen our faith. Culture talks about blind faith. That's a popular term. There's nothing blind about the Christian faith. We might have struggles, we might have doubts, we might have concerns, and it's totally okay, and it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have doubts. But by and large, we have an overwhelming number of evidence and witnesses to who Christ is and what he has done. And one of those witnesses is the witness of John the Baptist that's mentioned in this passage. There are a few witnesses specifically in this passage, and the first one we see is John the Baptist. And you already know this, but John the Baptist was a prophet. He was a holy man, a righteous man. His life pointed others to Jesus. Here in our passage, he's described as a burning and shining lamp. John was the lamp and Jesus was the light. The lamp is supposed to help the light shine. That's exactly what John did. The purpose of the lamp is to help the light shine better. And John's ministry constantly did that. At one point, John the Baptist was so excited to see Jesus, who was his cousin, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His ministry pointed to another. And notice how Jesus speaks of John the Baptist. He speaks of, them, speaks of him in the past tense. He says, He was a burning light. This means that, as all the commentators pointed out, that John the Baptist at this point is probably dead or in prison. Which is difficult to wrap our minds around because in the beginning part of the Gospel of John, it seemed like John the Baptist was getting a lot of attention and a lot of coverage. And here we are in John chapter 5 and he's already a footnote in the story. Sort of like a firework on the 4th of July. His ministry was there and then it was gone. His ministry was short-lived, and so are our lives. And while we're here on earth, as followers of Jesus, called by God to be witnesses for Him and to tell other people about Him. I am not an expert in a lot of things. One thing I'm not an expert in is in light bulbs. In our home, we moved into this home, wonderful home that we have, and we got there, I noticed that there were several light bulbs that were out, dimly lit, didn't work correctly. It was kind of annoying. I put up with it for a while. I'm finally like, oh, okay, I'll go to, go to Home Depot. I'll just talk to someone, try to figure out what light bulbs I should buy. And I get there, and the young man tries to uh, tell me about these LED light bulbs. And, you know, my instinct as a consumer is to be skeptical that the person is trying to upsell me. So I'm being a little suspicious, like, yeah, young man, what are, you what are you talking about, these LED light bulbs? Are you just trying to get me to spend more money? 
he gives me the stats and the statistics and he shows me the data and uh, it was kind of late at night and I just I didn't feel like googling the information to find out what was right you know it's not like I'm, I was gonna know but uh, I, I I ended up buying the LED light bulbs and uh, they are incredibly better than what we had before before the light bulbs were dimly lit almost this gave this orange e sort of look almost like this depressing feel in the room because the room wasn't lit well enough, but these light bulbs, these LED light bulbs have really made a huge difference in our home. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. If you're a follower of Christ, you're called not to be under a basket. But we are a city set on a hill as a church together, shining our light. For people at your job who don't know Christ, or people in your family who don't know the Lord. What God is calling us to do, what God is calling you to do, is to be witnesses for those people. To shine your light, to tell them about Jesus. To live godly and holy and ethical lives around them, to serve them, to love them, to pray for them. And as they see your actions and as they see your words, they'll begin to see something different about you. And they say, there's something different about your life. I want to know more about that. You'll bless them in incredible ways. But if you say you're a Christian with your mouth or you're too scared to even talk about your faith at all, you might end up like one of these dimly lit light bulbs and that you're not, not as effective as you could be. So the goal, the aim is to be witnesses of Christ and to shine and to tell other people about him. The great American missionary Jim Elliott prayed this. Listen to this prayer. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life and may I burn up for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. Consume my life, God, for it is thine. should be the prayer of every Christian. Another witness to Jesus' divinity that we see in this passage are His miracles and the validation of God the Father. Here in the text it says works. When I use the word works, I'm using it broadly to mean uh, many different things, but particularly in this context, it's uh, Christ's miracles, the things that He's done so far in John's Gospel. He's turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana, John 2. He healed the official's son, and he healed the man at the pool at Bethesda as well. If you read the Gospel of Counts, you'll see Jesus doing miracles. But it should be said that Jesus' primary ministry was not doing miracles. It wasn't his primary focus. His primary focus was on preaching, teaching the Word of God. It was also on evangelism, telling people about God. And it was also discipleship and leadership training. His 12 disciples, he spent a lot of time and energy raising up the next generation of leaders. If you're a leader, you should be doing the same thing. So Jesus' primary ministry was not miracles. But he did do miracles still. And when he did do those wonderful miracles, like raising someone from the dead, healing the blind, um, healing the deaf, whatever he did... He didn't do it so that people would get, he would get this big crowd or this big following. In fact, he often turned people away because he didn't want the miracles to get so much attention. 
but he occasionally did a miracle to validate his divinity. Yes, to help the suffering. Yes, to help those who are sick and hurting. But he did it to validate, to authenticate his divinity. He says, I said I was God. I'm going to show you that I'm God. This supernatural act that I'm doing validates my deity. That's one of the reasons why Jesus does his miracles throughout the Gospel of John. To prove that he is God. Another witness mentioned in this passage is the witness of God the Father. We uh, worship one God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Equal in divinity, but distinct in some roles. Last week we saw that the role of judgment is given to Jesus. And one of the things that God the Father does throughout the gospel accounts is he validates and he vouches for Jesus. You can remember when Jesus is baptized, immersed in water, and comes out of the water. There's a voice from the sky that says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Over and over, this God that the religious leaders thought they knew was showing them and everyone around them who is eavesdropping on Jesus' ministry that His Son, Jesus, is not just some ordinary other person But he is, in fact, the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. Messiah means deliverer, the one who would live the perfect life, die on the cross in your place for your sins, and rise from the dead. Over and over in the gospel accounts, God the Father validates the ministry of Jesus. The other witness that we see in this passage is the witness of Scripture. We're going to spend most of our time here with the witness of Scripture. A lawyer often will use his or her best witnesses for last when he or she is making his or her case in the courtroom. Best witnesses for last. Strongest witnesses for last. It's kind of what Jesus does here. He talks about John the Baptist being a witness. Talks about his own miracles in the passage, his works. Talks about God the Father and how God the Father is a witness of his divinity. He spends a large portion of the passage talking about Scripture and how Scripture points to him. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his religious opponents. And in verse 38 and verse 39, he says something shocking. He says that they... They search the scriptures hoping to find eternal life. Jesus even says that the word of God does not abide in them. They they read the Old Testament, these religious leaders. In fact, their, their love for the Old Testament, their love for knowledge and knowing numbers and rules and data and where things are in the Old Testament was legendary. It's historically known that they love to study the Torah, the law, the prophets, They spent much of their time and energy reading it. Many of us cannot take the time to memorize like, you know, 3 John or Jude, a really short book of the Bible. Some of these guys memorized the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And yet, after all that study and energy and attention towards the scriptures, Jesus says, they don't even abide in you. You search the scriptures... Because you thought your devotion could somehow save you. But nothing that you can do saves you. Only what Christ has done can save you. 
This would have been shocking for the religious leaders to hear. I think sometimes people think Jesus incessantly, which means always without any intervention. He always, he always said nice things to everyone everywhere he went. It's totally true that Jesus is loving, he's caring, he's servant-hearted, especially for his people, especially for those who are hurting. Yes, the heart of Jesus is one particularly drawn to sinners and sufferers who know him. And yet, with the religious leaders who were hypocritical, he often said very difficult things. This would have been insulting, this would have been indictment to men who have spent much of their lives studying and reading the Old Testament. We learn so much from this, but one thing we learn is that reading the Bible in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean it will be profitable. Uh, you can very much read Scripture for the wrong reasons. Wrong reasons would include trying to find a secret code to when Jesus will return, or Reading scripture because you, you love to argue and be divisive and argumentative and you just want to get theological and biblical knowledge and use it like a hammer against people. Or because you're looking for rules to follow and somehow if you can really muster up the strength and energy to follow those rules, especially those little obscure ones that no one else could do as good as you can do, what you're going to do is look for self-justification and try to justify your own self. And say, look at me, I can follow the rules better than everyone else. I must be saved because I'm diligent. It's good to have passion, it's good to have energy, it's good to have devotion. But all those things misunderstand why we have scripture in the first place. The footnote on the ESV study Bible, uh, which by the way, if you don't have an ESV study Bible, let me encourage you to go out and get one. It is spectacular. ESV study Bible by Crossway, John Chapter 5, verse 39, it says this. The study of the Bible ought to result in genuine faith in Jesus, followed by obedient action and transformed lives, not merely acquisition of Bible knowledge. So the goal is not merely acquisition of Bible knowledge, although Bible knowledge is important. As it's been said by others, we read the scriptures not just for information, but for transformation. To become more like Christ. Not just to know things about Jesus, but to become more like Him. To love Him. We read Scripture because we love God and we want to know God more. We read Scripture because we rightly know that through Scripture is a primary means by which the Holy Spirit uses to build us in our faith. This is why we preach and teach sermons on Sunday. This is why we have Scripture open at community groups. This is why you should be personally reading Scripture for yourself. We read scripture because we want to pass on the word of God to the next generation. We read scripture because we want to know how to please God. And what Jesus does here in this passage is he, he not only shows the religious leaders that he's speaking to that their efforts are in vain and they does not save them, but he's showing them how the Old Testament actually points to him. It points to Jesus. If you can remember in Luke's gospel, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, the famous walk on the road to Emmaus, he met his disciples, and we read these words. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. So Moses, 
and the prophets. Moses, the things he wrote, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and so forth. What Jesus did on the road to Emmaus was he opened up the Old Testament and said, Hey, let me show you how this points to me. The Old Testament points to Jesus. This is an extremely important thing to grasp. It's very important to see how the Old Testament points to Christ. If you see this, this will open up your eyes and your heart in a very new way. So, I know this can sound abstract. Old Testament points to Jesus. It seems like a very abstract thing. So, let's break this down a little bit more. So, you have Old Testament. You have Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, Testament means covenant. You have in, the, in the Old Testament, you have Genesis through Malachi. And in the Old Testament, it is totally true that the people who wrote the Old Testament wrote to the Israelites for a specific purpose of which they were going through. So the Bible is for you, but it's not written to you. None of the Bible was specifically written to you, although it is for us. So with the Old Testament, it was specifically written for the Old Testament Israelites to instruct them, to help them, to, to bless them. Yes and amen. But... Many of the central themes of the Old Testament point to Christ. And you can break this down by looking at particular individuals, events, and institutions. So let's just quickly, let's look at uh, some people. Let's look at some people in the Old Testament. And let me show you how uh, they point to Christ somehow. So we start with Adam in the beginning. Adam was in the Garden of, e of Eden. He was told you could have eat of any tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he sinned. He failed. So did Eve. And whether you like it or not, Adam served as our representative in the Garden of Eden. So how he did got transferred to you. He sinned. He failed. As a result, everyone born after him besides Jesus is born as a sinner by nature and by choice. Jesus also went to a garden. But the garden he went to was Gethsemane. And this time, when he was tested, he passed the test. So much so that it says in Luke that he sweat like drops of blood. And in the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus eventually dies and rises from the dead. And those who believe in him do not have sin transferred to them, but they have his righteousness transferred to them. Isaac... Isaac, let's take Isaac. Isaac, at the time, was Abraham's one and only son. God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice Isaac on a mountain called Moriah. Isaac was ultimately laid on a piece of wood, but he was spared. Jesus is God's one and only son. Instead of being spared, Jesus was slaughtered on a wooden cross on a mountain called Calvary. And now his sacrifice saves those who believe in him. Esther risked her life to save the Jewish people. Jesus did not just risk his life to save the Jewish people. He gave his life not just to save Jewish people, but anyone who would believe in him. In the desert, Moses struck the rock twice and out of it came drinking water temporarily for the people of Israel. Jesus was struck with the rock of God's justice, and now out of him comes living water to have forever 
for all people who believe in him. And on and on we can go about Abel, Jacob, Joseph, David, Jonah, and Job. Don't you see? Points to Christ. Everywhere the Old Testament writers are dropping clues. They're trying to show you, the reader, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. If you look closely, this points to Him. And one day He will make all things new. So part of understanding the Old Testament, part of reading about David and Jonah and Moses and so forth are not just getting moral lessons, although you can certainly get moral lessons there. Part of reading the Old Testament correctly comes by seeing how it points to Jesus because all of Scripture ultimately points to Him. You have to understand that to understand how to read the Bible correctly, that it ultimately points to Christ. What about events? Do you think of Exodus? Time would fail me to go into all events and institutions and so forth. But you can think about the Exodus, when God rescued the Israelites from slavery. Redemption happened. But that redemption ultimately was pointed to Jesus, who we can have redemption, which means when God takes us out of a bad situation and puts us into a good situation, the bad situation was that the Israelites were slaves and they were free. We were slaves to sin, but now we're free and we're free to be slaves of Christ. You can think of institutions like the Passover in which the blood of the lamb was put on the door. And if God saw that, his wrath would pass over those who appropriately followed the directions. But now in the New Testament, when Christ comes and dies and rises from the dead... He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood was shed on the cross for you. And if you believe Him, God accepts you. You have a right relationship with God, and God's wrath ultimately will pass over you. If you don't believe in Him, God's wrath does not pass over you. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of these signs are meant to point to Him. I went to Covenant Seminary for my, under, for my seminary training, Master Divinity program. And for three years, what I did was I, I got in my car every weekday, woke up, read my Bible and prayed if I could, got my stuff together, maybe a protein shake, get out the door. And, uh, you know, when you're driving on 64, there, there's, a, there's a sign that says Covenant Seminary. So every day, I drove to that sign, pulled over to the side of the road, sat there, studied. My professors came and met me there by the side of the road. Fellowship with various peers there. That's where I did my training. Of course I didn't do that. That would be complete insanity. You would be driving by the road on the highway and think, what in the world is going on there? I absolutely did not do that. What am I saying? What am I saying is this. The sign, Covenant Seminary, was meant to point to something else. Namely, the actual institution where I was supposed to go and drive and sit in the actual classroom and learn and study and so forth. Had I just sat there by the side of the road and tried to attempt to study there, I would have totally missed the point. That's kind of what we do when we read the Bible and we don't see how... The signs point to Jesus. 
we completely miss the point. What will happen if we, uh, if we read Scripture and we try to not find Jesus? I'm not talking about those who love God, right? You love God. You want to obey God. You, you want to know Him. Perhaps you've never been taught this. Uh, perhaps you, you never had good Bible study training on how to read the Bible well. Maybe you have missed this. But what happens if we, if we regularly read Scripture and we don't see how it points to Christ? What will happen if we read Scripture and we, we try to make it more about us than it is actually about Jesus? I can give you a few things that come to mind. One is we'll become, like I said earlier, divisive and argumentative. It's good to love theology. It's good to have strong convictions. Sometimes we might even divide over major issues. We, we could have our disagreements. We certainly don't need to be believing what everyone else believes. Part of my job as a pastor is to protect our church from false doctrine and from false prophets through right preaching and so forth. We, yes and amen. We, we, we need to love God and love His Word. But there's a way of reading the Bible and attacking the Bible. If you're, if you're not looking for Jesus, if you're not becoming like Him, is that it'll, it'll make you proud. Paul says to the Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge without love will make you prideful. It will potentially make you divisive. You can do damage to the church. It's good to have passion. It's good to have that zeal that you should keep going. But it might be slightly misguided and you want to see how it points to Christ. You'll acquire information, but you won't experience transformation. There are a lot of people who read the Bible critically as an opponent, but their lives don't seem any different. you know, I, I thrive off of information myself. You know, whenever I'm writing a sermon, I, I like to consult as many resources as I possibly can. Whenever I want to make a big life decision or make a big leadership decision, I want to consult as many trusted friends and mentors that I can and read as much as I can. Information is good, but the information needs to lead to transformation. So you don't have to approach God's word with the sense of, oh, if, God, if I don't read my Bible every day, God is going to be angry at me. No, God already poured out his anger on Christ. We don't want to just hurriedly read the scripture just to feel good about ourselves and say we read a couple of verses and move on with our day. We want to sit in scripture and feast on it because we love God and we want to know him more. Last one I have here is that you might become cynical and leave the faith altogether. Uh, This is particularly true of people who, and you might know people like this, who gave a good effort in the Christian faith. They say things like, you know, I'm, I'm, I read the Old Testament. I, I tried to obey all those rules. I tried to obey all the New Testament rules. And I failed and it gave me no joy. And now I'm a cynic and I left the church. Well, it's like, yeah, brother or sister, like those rules were meant to show you that you can't actually live up to God's expectation. That's why we need Christ. Certainly there are rules in the New Testament like fleeing from sexual morality And um, a gathering with God's people that should be kept and obeyed absolutely. But if you try to find your identity and sense of how good you're doing. And how good you're obeying all the rules and not on what Christ has done for you. you, It'll lead you to despair. Yes, we want to obey the rules, the New Testament rules that apply to us. And yes, we want to obey God's word. Absolutely. We don't want to try to save ourselves through our accomplishments or how good we're doing. 
only salvation that we can receive is through Christ. And in John 5, 42 and 43 there, towards the end of the passage, Jesus provides more reasons. And he says that you won't honor God and love God to the degree that you should. It is true. It is true that one could search the scriptures in vain. Now let me, I'm going to flip that on you and go to the other side. Jesus, um, Jesus was talking about religious leaders of his day that searched the scriptures for the wrong reason. I wonder if in our day, the pendulum has swung. That people don't search the scriptures at all. It's totally wrong to read scripture to try to save yourself, try to figure out when Christ is coming back, to try to find rules that you can obey to try to save yourself, to, to want to be argumentative and divisive. It, that's totally wrong. But what's also, what's, what's also misguided is to not read scripture at all. Um, reading scripture regularly is important for empowerment to obey God and know him more. So yes, we want to avoid the trap of reading Scripture for the wrong reasons. But we also want to avoid the trap of becoming apathetic or so overwhelmed with busyness in life that we don't stop to sit in Scripture and drink deeply from the well of God's Word. Whatever that looks like for you in your own personal life, let me, let me encourage you to do that, to sit deeply in Scripture and to Look for Jesus and to do it not just for information, but to become more like Him. And the more you become like Him, the better witness you will be for Him. We learn in, in about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, which says about them, it says that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I hope you can take my word for it whenever I preach. But, you know, sometimes I invite you and I say, hey, please turn with me in your Bible to X, Y, chapter, number. I want you to grab that Bible and turn with me so that you can see for yourself. So that you can be like a Berean. So that you can search the scriptures for the right reasons and grow in Christ. You know, tomorrow is Memorial Day. And if I ask you, does reading about Memorial Day necessarily make you a better American? Not necessarily. Knowledge is good. and Reading about Memorial Day is, can be a fascinating experience, I'm sure. But what makes you a good American is not just knowledge of your country, although that helps. But what makes you a better American is a love for your country. And not just a love for your country, but a love for a people, for the people who live in this country. Same is true with searching the scriptures. What, what makes us more effective lights and witnesses in this world are not knowledge in and of itself, but knowledge combined with transformation. The more we read scriptures to find Jesus. The more we become like him, the more we will be better witnesses for him. Let's pray. Father, I pray you teach us to help us to understand this passage.
Pray that you would give us the desire to read scripture regularly. Help us to do it for the right reasons. To find Jesus. To become more like you. To be transformed into your image. Oh God, we need your help. We pray that you would move on us. And bless us in our efforts to know you more through reading scripture. Help us to do it for the right reasons. But help us to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.